This is Radio Havana, Cuba. This is Radio Pyongyang of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. This is Moscow. You can find me at drnormal.com. Uh, started a blog there. It's only been a few years to start my own blog. What the hell? Um, and in addition, uh, I'll be posting the podcast weekly here. I'm shooting for Sundays at 9-ish. It's about 9.39 right now, so that's that's really cool. Um, and I'm here with some guests, and we're going to do some talking uh in the past when we did uh, crazy talk in november we kind of trended toward uh, journalism the new journalism uh we talked about digital journalism since then uh there's been conferences we make the media betsy richter does a redoing uh media podcast i was on that a few weeks ago actually talking about digital journalism uh kind of wanted to get away from that kind of wanted to find uh, some new subjects and uh kick this off with some great guests and we have them today so today we're going to talk about i'll just run down kind of a little bit about uh what we're going to talk about what i posted to the blog and that is what is the value of work uh, of the trades and crafts and those with intimate knowledge of their machines has higher education been relegated to churning out indebted middle-class knowledge workers performing to ambiguous standards of excellence in their cubicles? And what does that mean for the Facebook generation? Is our future cast in a virtual world of self-indulgence lacking any self-reliance? So tonight, to answer these questions, are two very special guests to kick off kick off crazy talk uh the first is amber case and amber case is a cyborg anthropologist that's not amber that's amber right there still trying to work out the kinks um amber case is a cyborg anthropologist and tech consultant researching prosthetic culture she studies the interaction between humans and computers and how our relationship with information is changing the way cultures think act and understand their worlds case wrote her thesis on cell phones and their techno social sites of engagement welcome amber and sitting next to her tonight also we have Andy Beach. Andy Beach is a digital media professional who combines technology, creativity, and business strategy. He's also the author of Real World Video Compression, a book that seeks to explain the world of compression in plain English. Andy brings significant expertise and experience in the field of product strategy and marketing, video compression, and rich media solutions. Thank you, Andy. Wow, what a cool sounding guy. <laughs> 
And in addition, uh, Andy uh, works on Volvos, as I found out. So I, I thought that would be a, a, a good good idea to, to bring him on. And amateur uh, mixologist, don't forget. I mean, Uh-oh. That's right. Amateur mixologist as well. Right. Please. So uh, I realized that, I, that we got together and I sent you an email uh, about kind of what uh, the general gist of what we're talking about. Uh, this... This crazy talk is inspired by the uh, book called Shop Class as Soulcraft, as the value of work. Uh, essentially, the, the book laments the idea that shop class in education has uh, gone away, that uh, in the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, knowledge working and working with computers has been, has been really the focus of education and uh, working with mills, working on machines, um, repairing engines and automobiles has has gone away. In addition, we see cars from Germany coming that don't even have dipsticks in them. And the idea that the author uh, points out is that um, if you open up an engine today, you actually see another hood. You don't see the actual parts of the engine, the actual uh, workings, carburetor, you know, the exhaust. The, the everything's hidden. Mm-hmm. The idea there is that no one really knows how to repair an engine. No one really knows what's happening. We're kind of um, maybe extrapolated or, or, or you know, far removed from the inner workings of a world. So I've asked Amber what she thinks, as a cyborg anthropologist, um, how you believe that this is in the virtual world in the future. How do you think that that, that the world's going to look? Is this are, are we going to interact in a virtual world with each other and not know the underpinnings of the physical world we live in, or are we? Uh, are we basically, uh, or will there be two cultures, two sides of cultures? What's your thoughts? I think there's always been two sides of cultures, right? There's the people who can look under the hood and figure the things out, and there are the people who don't, and the people who don't purchase things. And first, the thing that came to mind, other than the fact that I really enjoyed being able to take shop class, um, was Richard Feynman, uh, this, this Nobel laureate physicist, during the Los Alamos project. And what happened is they got these really large computers and they were trying to compute all these things to to make sure that the atomic bomb would go off correctly. And they couldn't just call in a specialist from the computer company and they couldn't just, you know, say, "Hey, come in and fix our computer because it will as a top secret project. They're making atomic weapons, right?" There are all these issues of spies and things like that. So what they had to do is they had to actually look under the hood and figure out what was really going on and and innovate in that way. And so they were forced to do something like that. Anyway, I think that the people who will be successful in the future, it doesn't matter whether it's virtual or tangible, but those people that can actually figure out how the thing works and make it work in a new and different way will be okay. But that's always been occurring. There's always been a whole class of people who don't know how to look at things, and there are a whole class of people that do. And the ones that maybe know how to look at things aren't marketing themselves as that. They're just sitting there, like, slowly tinkering on things. But they're actually doing the really important work. 
It seems like uh, the tinkering is more in the hobby realm, though. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at manufacturing, if you look at uh, uh, servicing of machines, uh, so much of it is offshore now. Um, I believe they even offshore uh, servicing uh, aircraft um, to other, you know, locations. They fly them out to, you know, South America and places like that and, and do their annual services. Um, I wonder if that's healthy for, I mean, when we're talking about culture, we're talking about our culture, right? Western culture, American culture. Um, I wonder if that is healthy because you have, you're saying you have two cultures that are existing. One is this service class that is making sure everything works, the underpinnings of everything works. And another class is working in a virtual world. Is that is that what you're suggesting, or is that... I guess there's, there's like a service class, and then there's um, people working, or people like purchasing things. Like, for instance, the idea of Apple Consumers. is that you just, you consume it, and you can't edit the registry files, and you can't do anything with it, and you can't modify how the system is, really. Um, and so that gives a bunch of limitations, and a lot of people like that limitation. Like, they don't want to go beneath the surface. They want that thing that's advertised, and they right. want it to work in that certain way. And... But then you think of like all the really big innovations that have happened, like especially from like American innovators or from people hacking really late hours at night. Maybe it's not necessarily a hobby, but they're you know it's like Bill Gates going to the local college from three a.m. to five a.m. hacking on some machine, you know, not knowing that he's going to be doing something great, but doing something because he really likes to do it. There's that whole segment of people that do it because they're passionate about it, not because they see dollar signs in their eyes, right. but because they're moving something forward for some really strange reason <coughs> that they have no idea. Yeah, I don't think we have to call it the um, the service culture or the service aspect of it. It's the early adopters, and the early adopters tend to be the, the hackers and the tinkers and the people who want to like work out the bugs and figure out the, the cool things you can do with this new idea. That, that's come along, and then once they've figured it out, there tends to be sort of a buttoning down of of whatever is going on and sort of a simplification of it that then goes out to a wider audience. And that wider audience doesn't care how it works, they just want to know that it works. Mm -hmm. Like my, you know, my mother-in-law doesn't care how email works or how the, how the wireless router in our house works. She just knows that she can open up the laptop I gave her and check her email anytime she wants. So, yeah, you bring up a good point because you talk about um, hacking and people who are who are working with code who do know the underpinnings of the stack that the end users are are working with, totally. and it's it's this kind of um, and that that point's well taken, but it's this kind of idea of of we still exist in a physical material world, and you're still talking about a virtual world when we're talking about source code and building websites and interacting intellectually with that. I mean, sure, you're going to have people who are going to be the, the knowledge workers and the engineers that, um, that work on the underpinnings of that virtual world. But without the physical world, we still don't exist. We haven't evolved beyond that. I think Amber brought up a uh, interesting idea, and that's something I I started reading. Um, Gene Kranz's uh, "Failure is Not an Option," 
the book about uh, his his life at at NASA and uh, Apollo thirteen and Apollo one, and those were really guys when they were when they were doing the Apollo program. I mean, they were working with software, but a lot of hardware. I mean, there were guys like actually in there working on pumps and computers and memory on the the, the computers. Um, there's a lot of physical engineering work. And it just seems like all of that has left our society. It seems, um, as the author points out in the uh, shop class of Soulcraft, uh, we invented the dummy light. So uh, you're driving and a light goes on in your dashboard and it says, okay, <laughs> now you have to go do something. Drive this to the garage and, and get it checked out. You don't know what it is. Maybe it's an oil change. Maybe it's something else. Um, now, Andy, when you work on your Volvos, is that what are you gaining from that? So right. as, as someone who is actually working on video compression technologies, uh, a, a virtual environment, what is it you're gaining in your life? So to part, work on right part of the reason I actually started working on old cars and I definitely I work on old cars because I I actually agree like new cars when you open them up like they tend to be too complicated to immediately look at and deal with like it's more than you want to do whereas you plug like, them into a computer right exactly whereas a car from the sixties kind of looks like basically a lawnmower from today like if you open it up it's it's like you can understand and identify all the parts and so when I got in like I had always been into cars but I specifically after I wrote my book I really I spent a lot of time on the computer I got really really burned out in addition to like doing my daytime job trying to like write this book at night and I just needed something that was completely the opposite and and sort of getting dirty under the hood of a car was that thing and uh, and I totally enjoy it and and find it um, sort of therapeutic because it's a way of almost turning your brain off from that other part and doing something else for a while but at the same time it's very it's still very much problem solving in the way that like it, I thought it was going to be completely different than what I do for a living and it's turned out to be very similar to what I do because it's still sort of putting things together it's just physical objects versus versus virtual objects so it's I actually approach the problem solving part of it identically and and that part I enjoy and I think the reason I can turn off part of my brain while I'm doing it is because I've trained myself for so many years in how to do it virtually and now I just do it physically and, and it's just that difference of, of the two so I, I actually approach them very similarly. I, I think. So you you see it as a as the same act. Essentially. Yeah, it's it's yes. It's just one is it has a physical boundary to it that that the other doesn't. You know, when I'm when I'm approaching when I deal with like video compression problems and I'm trying to like figure out why something's not working, it's it's very much that just problem solving task, and you just keep sort of you know going after an issue and and running down and sort of figuring out what's wrong. And it's kind of the same thing when you're trying to take apart an engine block or figure out what's not working and, and make that, that thing work the same way. It's, it's, just, it's just different parts, and some of them are rusty and some of them are digital. But, but it's actually a similar process, and, and I don't know. They're both enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, they're both kind of fun. What about the standards? I, I thought one of the interesting concepts is that in the physical mechanical world, the standards you're held to is is the damn thing either works or it doesn't when you're done with it, mm. right? Um, it, it, in in the virtual world, in the in the world of code, 
we have beta releases and defeaturing and and a lot of um, and agile development and a lot of types of, of development bug lists uh, upon release. Um, there seems to be a slippery, would it be quality or a slippery slope of um, of results that we see in in our virtual world and virtual products and and product uh, video streaming software and word processors and all of that, right? And um, and it's and it's less forgiving. In 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 the physical world, um, do you agree with that? I mean, do you agree that mm-hmm. there's there's different standards and 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 we've grown and evolved to to literally not really adhere to high standards. In other words, craftsmanship is gone. I I don't think I agree with that. I don't know. It's I feel like there's. I agree that there's different stages of sort of being done and being ready to to put something out, but I feel like that's true in the physical world just as much as it, as it is in the in the virtual. I mean, I can only sort of take the example of of the car again, and and mostly this is because I deal with sort of old cars, and and when you're dealing with old cars, there's a lot of different stages of actually working or not, like. You know, my project car at any given point, I might be able to drive it down the street or I might not. And it might be a street legal car or it might not. And it might actually stop when I press on the brakes or it might not. But, I mean, it's there's different stages of being done with it at any given point. And, and maybe that's sort of similar to to the code world of, of having beta releases. So I don't think I'm ever done working on a car necessarily because there's always something else I want to tinker with and do with it. Um, and it's kind of that craftsman part of it in a way because there's there's always something I'm trying to refine or, or tweak. Like once I think I'm done with something, there's another piece of it that I want to do. Wouldn't it be cool if it did this as well? And I kind of think that goes back to the stuff that goes into the digital world and the stuff I do with, with video and blogs. Like it's great once you get to where you think you're done and then it's like, okay, what's the next thing I can do to it? Is it... Uh... Amber, is it? It's just kind of like a constant evolution now. Like in the past, maybe um, centuries ago, people would do something and they'd they'd manufacture it and it it would be done, and then you use it until it breaks. And we've moved in the twenty first century into more like kind of a constant beta release. Mm. There's a lot of interesting stuff along that. First off, what you said is the idea of when you're working on something and you get it finished and you right. want to do the next thing, right? It's, when I used to play with Legos, it's very similar, right? You build totally. a thing and you're done. You're like, what am I doing? This thing is finished. This is useless. And then you take it apart, <laughs> right. right? There's there's the use comes from doing the thing in that moment, right? Because it's this tactile thing. And then once it's done, I mean, what's the point? So, But there's this other thing where... The use value of an object was very stable, like especially like like Native Americans, or you have like the Hopi Indians, where you mm-hmm. have like a bowl that's created and it lasts for quite a bit of time. And you have like in um, I, I think it was like this Russian culture where you had like this little apron. Everyone would wear this apron around, and then at night they would go home and they would put it up on their windows, and they would use it to cover the light in the morning. So it was both a window cover and an apron like it was dual use objects did you pass it down through generations yeah, like even? the idea of heirloom yeah. objects yeah like that they last for like 100 years or you have this these very well manufactured things and now you have this idea of like ikea or you have this idea of these things that don't last very long 
and they're very transitory objects and they're kind of flowing and and then online you have these releases that are so fast that they're just kind of organically evolving it's like release point one two or the wordpress release where you're just upgrading 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 where the idea of a really good design is that it stays that way for a really long period of time and it doesn't need to change because its use value even though things change externally stays very stable versus right now it's just everything is in so much flux that if you go into certain spaces online, things are changing, 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 changing really quickly. Um, so there are no really stable things that have come out. I mean, even the computer is kind of evaporating, getting smaller and smaller, and that's the most unstable object in terms of use value. So it's really weird to watch that. It's what objects have actually stayed the same for hundreds and hundreds of years. Things like the hairbrush or the table have stayed really the same. But the computer hasn't stayed the same. So what is the computer? It's kind of an externalization of mental operations versus like the physical self on a table, right? The table still looks the same, but the computer really doesn't. So there are these weird things that are happening, like this, this separation between physical objects that we interact with and mental objects that we interact with. So, uh, I mean, I think that's it's an interesting point because um, y you suggest the computer and... In general, well, in general, the general, the hard disk, the CPU, the memory that's been around for, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, that kind of general idea, um, it's gotten better. But usually when we look at computer, we look at it being uh, easily, you know, obsolete within 18 months, you know, two years, uh, including the software the hardware. Do you see anything, Amber, in the 21st century right now? You, you mentioned, like, the table or something very obvious, right? You know, the toilet maybe is pretty efficient, I guess. Um, do you... <laughs> Although in Japan, I think they have, like, new takes They have on some that. cool toilets in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're great. They're a hole in the floor. Yeah, yeah. It works out pretty well. Um... But do you see anything, any modern devices uh, or modern, uh, you know, software, anything in the modern world that looks like it has staying power like the items you talking about in the past? That's a really good question. In a way, no, not at all. I mean, you look at a bowl, the bowl looks just like a bowl. A glass looks just like a glass. A clock kind of turns into this weird, you know, digital clock thing, but it still tells time. I don't know if anything in the digital realm really stays stable since its inception. Like the idea of a pure functional device. It's that's a strange question. Do you think? Yeah, can no, you think of anything? I'm trying to think of that. And almost one of the like goals of digital is that like you change it to meet the needs at any given point. I mean, it's, you know, if it's not doing something you want, you write something new and add it in and and make it happen. And that's sort of the. So I was like trying to think of like the, even the lower functionality of it and like the instant communication capabilities or something else that come along with it. But it's a it's kind of a tough question. It's a great question. I, I wish I had a better answer for it. I'm going to think of one tomorrow, and I'm going to tweet it. There we go. Yeah, and I will follow that, and it will be great. Awesome. Well, I, I mean, it, it, it's like, uh, you know, it, it, 
is it Facebook or Twitter? Is it, does that have that kind of staying power? Will I, will I be passing that down to to generations? You if, know, if you if you did want to say one, and like there is like definitely this sense of like there's always like these walled garden communities that sort of pop up mm-hmm. that Absolutely. on there, and like AOL was like one of the first big ones. CompuServe mm-hmm. was even the first big ones, and then AOL, and now Facebook is kind of like the new AOL, and it's that sense of like having a an enclosed garden space where people interact and do do things and now we just happen to call it social media stuff kind of and and it'll be that and there'll be some new version of that that comes along but but those always sort of like form up and then they break down and we make new versions of them as Mm -hmm. we move along and as new functionalities come along so so there is that sort of that immediate sort of digital network neighborhood kind of version of things and maybe that that will always be there it'll just keep taking multiple different forms and right right now we call it facebook Right, and it's like it's really just communication, just manifests differently. Really, it's yeah. just the idea of a, the annihilation of geography, where it's like distance and location doesn't really matter. It matters like how you can communicate and how quick you can communicate with right. that person. So how smooth the interface is, and if it reduces the amount of time and space it takes to talk to somebody else, then it works. And the next thing that comes along and is faster, then people will just swarm to, and it'll work out okay. So, yeah, there's uh, all these different manifestations, like the idea of Friendster, and then it keeps evolving into its most stable version today, which we think is very stable and very innovative, and then suddenly we get the next whatever the heck. Oh, this is so much better. I can't believe it. You know, that little tiny innovation that makes everybody step over into the next thing. So things that have uh, staying power are inherently... um, speak to the human condition so digital uh walled gardens and communities that um that uh try to uh, enhance and bring together uh people to communicate uh to communicate over time and and geography uh those things will continue and have staying power correct yeah i think so it's not even the you know, the walled garden kind of part comes up because you need some defined parameters for the larger audience to, to adopt. Like, you know, people, people, I think, in a pack as a group want some rules mm. and some definition in order to, to make things work. And a walled garden is a good place for those definitions to sort of be put together. And then you're always going to have the guys, the tinkerers and the, the, the people, the, the service industry that we talked about, who go out and figure out how to break that down and do something else, and those become the next features and the cool things that we want to add in. So we tear everything down and build it back up with those new things involved. Right, it makes a lot of sense. It's the idea of maybe somebody doesn't have a face or like a, a blog, right, and they don't have a website, but they can get one from GeoCities or AOL Home Sites, and now they can get one from Facebook, right? And it's this this automatic thing. Actually, Chris Messino is really great about talking about this, like the idea of Maslow's hierarchy. Like initially, you you know you found a cave and you got yourself some food from somewhere outside of the cave, and you had some relationship with somebody so that, you know, and eventually you got some sort of self-actualization. It was great. But eventually you, like in modern society, you get your place from a property company, you get your food from a grocery store, whether it be like Safeway or Whole Foods or whatever demographic you are, and now you're getting your identity from Facebook or Twitter. Right. So the idea of self-hosting is to self-host your own identity, which is the same as like going out and getting your own meat like from a cave, right? <laughs> or like finding your own cave, right? So there's this interesting thing. If you can't get your own thing, then you go to Facebook, you get one of the identity providers, 
right? Or you make your own identity online through, you know, colonizing search right. engine results or making your own blog or, you know, self-creating your identity, right? right. And getting and those, your own name. Those like the identity you pick online helps funnel you into a certain crowd. Like right. your Facebook crowd is very different than your MySpace right. crowd. Then. And people on Facebook, like I, I, I have a very static page on Facebook. Like nobody can see pictures. They can't, like there's this defined thing. I say, I won't talk to you for two weeks if you message me because that's not the provider of my identity. The provider of my identity is myself. Right? Right. So all those people on there are just... They're a very different type of person. They're used to interacting with people via image, right? Mm -hmm. Or people on Twitter are used to interacting with people via text. You know, so there's these different things. Like the the shape of the online space creates that person, right? It shapes how that person can interact with people. This is really interesting to watch. Like you can predict somebody's behavior just by knowing like what platform they're coming from. Like people from MySpace are definitely a certain <laughs> way, you know, and people from Facebook are definitely another right. certain way. Profiling does work sometimes. Yes, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a little bit disturbed because um, <laughs> um, I, I always uh, break it, break these arguments down into my own little pea brain intellectual uh, uh, summaries. And what I'm hearing here <laughs> is that what we have as as staying power as some sort of um, something that gets passed on to generations in the 21st century is uh, a means to constantly evolve communications in an incredibly nomadic way. We're talking about moving to different communities, creating uh, a different um, a persona or something like that, and, and involve and creating constantly evolving tools, Google, Facebook. You talked about Friendster earlier. We also talked about AOL and CompuServe. Um, to do those types of things, unfortunately, previous to the digital revolution, the uh, industrialized revolution tried to avoid that. In other words, we, we tried to, to, you know, we, we essentially conquered nomadic people and established civilizations, brick and mortar, that stayed for, for decades and centuries. And what I'm hearing here is that this constant change also breeds um, what I would see as constant movement in the digital world. Would you agree? Yeah, uh, well, it kind of brings up an interesting point. The idea of AOL home sites, everybody was, and not everybody, but a certain number of people were going and making these pages on AOL home sites when it came out, which is very much like a GeoCities provider of website capability. And they would do memorial pages for loved ones. They would do you know, these really epic, big sites. And one day, AOL home sites said, we're going to shut down and we'll give you two weeks' notice. But they put it on their main web page instead of emailing all of the users. And so, of course, nobody was checking their site, or they were not checking the AOL home site site. And it was, it was like saying, we're going to build an interstellar highway, but we're going to put it into a thing that says beware of the leopard in, like, a basement, right? It, almost exactly the same thing happened to all of these AOL home, uh, home sites users. And 
they expected it to be permanent, right? The, in the same way that people expect to save things on hard drives or disks and have it be permanent. The same way that you write something in stone or have something on paper and be, it be permanent. And all of these people's um, <laughs> extensions of identity were completely lost. And it's this really upsetting thing that a lot of this stuff is really not built to last. And it really is nomadic that well, you have to be really active. Another one of the really bad things is this sociologist named Irving Goffman wrote this book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life in 1963. And it was all about how you present yourself in everyday life, right? You have these different aspects of yourself that you present. And online, you're presenting yourself, but a year later, or even six months later, it changes. And so you have to physically maintain this external self, right, this representation of self. So you have to upload new pictures, you have to refresh the text. What if your music changes that you like? What if, you know, you don't like that thing anymore and you have to maintain like these 20 different social profiles, right? There's this extreme external maintenance that you have to provide. And there's this weird thing where I'll go on to YouTube and I'll see these girls and they're like, you know, 14 and then they turn 15 and they say, oh no, my profile's really old, I have to update it. Right? Instead of just updating the physical, actual self, there's two selves that people start having to update. And as people go onto multiple profiles, they're updating like 20 selves instead. Well, there's the LinkedIn self, which is really the professional extension of self. And then there's the Facebook self, which is the partying expression of self. And the MySpace, which is the musical expression of self. And the Twitter, which is the really fast, hyper-communication version of the self. It becomes very fragmented and very difficult to put all those things into one. And if you forget a few of them, then you're, you might be getting rid of some of those opportunities and it could be bad. So there's this anxiety caused by this external maintenance that needs to happen. But I, th I think what you're pointing out there is that um, uh, the fragmentation is the, the virtual representation of self as it's... Uh, reconciled with the physical representation of self yeah the 15 year the 14 to 15 year old is going to update her profile because she's physically changing uh, intellectually physically she's growing up right um and it seems like you and then you talk about the the linkedin professional profile versus maybe the the facebook these things represent how you manifest yourself in the real world and then how you're going to map that back to the virtual world. Right. Now, again, as a cyborg anthropologist, how do you see that changing in the future? I mean, how do we reconcile that? So right now we have that problem. Does that change later? Do we become more <coughs> virtualized and there's less of a mapping reality to the virtual world or where do you see that going well it seems that in the past or maybe in the golden age of america right you have the 1950s and people are taking a job and they take it for 40 years and they retire right and now you have kids who are doing a job for maybe six months eight months maybe four months and then they do some freelance work and then they switch it up and then they have different clients this really chaotic soupy thing of a identity and this you know they take on a job because they might know that thing or they might know the other thing and there's not that many stable jobs 
The gold watch does not exist <laughs> But no, it all. does. It, it still exists for a certain demographic of people, and it always will, because it's a very stable, traditional demographic. Right? But the entire structure, like the middle class and lower class, like there's the, the whole service industry, there's this whole... Um, like if you think of Japan, Japan's going through this, Britain is going through this, the idea of like boomerang kids or the idea of kids who grow up, they go to a liberal arts school or they go to college and they don't really know what to do and they're meandering around doing these like artsy things and not really having to focus and then eventually either they move back in with their parents or they're 28 and they're still not fully understanding of what they want to do and maybe they travel for a while like this idea didn't really exist a long time ago it was it was more like you know you got a job in a very industrial thing and you did that and you provided for your family you had insurance right and is very stable right now you have this this fragmented thing in the same way that you can go onto f um, f uh, wikipedia and you go into the black hole of wikipedia where you gain this understanding of these very specific things and you have all these tabs open in your browser but you're not actually fully absorbing the amount of time it takes to fully understand that subject you're understanding it in the same way that you would if you were fully involved in that subject, but you don't have the years of experience. And so you get these fragmentations of, oh, I really want to be this, and oh, I really want to be that. And, oh, and there's this, this stretching of all these different things. And it's very pressurizing to these kids, especially in the countries that I mentioned, that they don't really know what they want to do, but they know that they want to do these certain things that they see, but they don't have the experience or the structure to do those things, and it's really quite tragic to watch. Um, so that's kind of where I see some of it going. So you see kind of a, a more just kind of a anarchy, so to speak, and not a reconciliation. More of like this, this like fetish, like this fetish towards the ideal of knowing something completely, mm -hmm. but that none of them can actually know something completely. Mm -hmm. Where and, and it goes back to like the shop class argument, the fact right. that like they really don't want to know what is in their car. But yet they have these new cars and they have no idea. Or the fact that like none of them actually got to take shop class. Or none of them are actually taking apart their computers and building one from scratch because they all have Macs. Or that everything's taken for granted. And they want to look under the hood of everything, but they can't. And maybe some point in their lives, you know, maybe when they're like stoned or something, they have this revelation, but it doesn't really line up to anything and they can't really do anything with it. So they write it in some notebook and put it away for a long time. And it's just kind of this tragic thing where um or you know they go to school and they get some theory on stuff but they don't get that experience in like a lot of traditional society was the idea of apprenticeship right you right. go in and you learn how to do something and then you learn from this guy that's much better than you and then you become that right and like the idea of last names comes from professions mm -hmm. and now you have you can be anything you want to be you can do anything you want you can go to school and get a lot of awards and now you take the sat these are these abstract concepts applied to nothing right so people get out they have no skills for the real world they don't know what they really want to do and they can be anything they want to be and there's no limitations so they don't know really what they want to be and they can just subsist on nothing it's just kind of this vapid um frightening thing you know there are not that many trade schools it's like with that seth godin article which is talking about yes. like full cell and a few of the other schools that you know and, and the idea of like all of the people that i've known who have become very successful have been just working on their own businesses while in college or well in high school and not really paying attention to the class and getting c's 
because they realized that it wasn't as important. Right. There's definitely, I, I mean, I feel like I know very few people who went to college and do what whatever their degree is involved with. Like, that's a very small set. Although, I feel like I also probably went to kind of one of those trade school places. Like, I, I went to a fine arts school mm-hmm. and, and got a fine arts degree. And, and even though it's in film, I kind of still work in that because I do video compression work. And so I mm-hmm. went to the far, far technical edge of that. So, I don't know. It's... I agree it's, uh, I don't know, I guess I have a more, slightly more optimistic view of it in that, in that there are people out there sort of getting, you know, the, the modern intern is basically the apprentice in a lot of places, and, and, and to a good degree. I mean, I, I've, I have found that in places that I work, there are, there are a number of people who have gotten a general degree, which may or may not be helpful. Like, I feel like there's, there's a lot of English degrees floating around out there. <laughs> who don't know what they want to do with their lives, and then they go out and they find a job somewhere and they actually get into a profession and they start learning it kind of from the ground up. And, and in a way, sometimes I wish I had done that, but at the same time, I'm, I'm quite happy that I went off and, and learned very esoteric art history and, and other things along the way. Well, it, it, um, Amber brought up uh, Seth uh, Godin's, um, I think, a fairly recent blog post called The Coming Meltdown in Higher Education as, as Seen by a Marketer. And um, I think it's a good point because, uh, like, Andy, you, and, and probably Amber, and a lot of the people I see who are doing things, you actually, you know, received an education and then molded that education for yourself to actually do something um you know that 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 was going to make a difference in the world, so to speak. You know, actually, you know, to create a career and to create your own sense of craftsmanship in your life, so to so right. to speak. My degree basically set me up to go out and learn other things. Like I don't feel right. like I ever stopped right. learning, and like that was the thing I got was that I'm always going to be learning, and that I just need to keep going out and finding right. things to be interested in. Right. The education itself totally. really. Right. It was. It was. You know, it was a sidebar. <laughs> yeah, it was a sidebar. It wasn't an apprenticeship. And right. in the past, uh, if uh, if we were living a hundred years earlier or whatever, we would have apprenticed in some sort of um, career, some sort of uh, thing, and 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 uh, and that's what we would be doing today. And I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of the younger people that I interact with here in Portland, who who do things, who are who code and design, uh, fit that type of um, that type of model where they they kind of went to school and did one thing, but then they they're they're off doing something else. Right. Um, and I think that's where the Seth Godin blog says, you know, higher education has failed. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're spending all that money to get an education. That really, in the end, kind of means nothing. As you move forward, then we have a problem. In, in other words, everything you're learning today is online. The education you're getting is going to meetups and doing uh, code sprints with people uh, that you're not doing in the classroom. Uh, and I, I think that's an interesting change. It's almost as if. Uh, now we're creating our own um, virtual apprenticeships uh, for lack of apprenticeships right. today. Yeah, 
at the same time, I like I totally think we should bring back the digital journeyman. Maybe uh, I think that should yeah. be like a like an official yeah. profession. But uh, but at the same time, I don't know if I would have the appreciation or the understanding of it if I hadn't gone through the other. Like I I sort of feel like I I I understand that I want to keep learning and doing these other things as I move through because I didn't get it in college and because I was never going to get it in college. Like there, there are things I simply can't learn in a college setting that I want to know. And, and partially I'm aware of that because I, I went through that experience. So I don't know how you split those two apart. It's a tough mm -hmm. call. Yeah. I was working at a computer shop before I went to college and, uh, I said, what the heck am I doing? What is the difference between me and the manager of this place? And I said, oh, well, that guy went to college, and he understood how to think in a different way. And when I went off to school, I got an education in how to think. And it's not necessarily an education in some specific thing. It's how to think about a certain problem, and any problem, really, and how to figure it out in a certain type of way, in a rational way. And that was very useful. So I guess that's the traditional liberal arts education now that I have a foundation in sociology and anthropology, I can take those very specific traditional things and apply them to the digital world, and it's this nice grounding. Like David Pogue, for instance, he lives in a very traditional, old-fashioned house in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, right? This is a very traditional, right? But he deals with these very intense, digitally changing things, right? So he has this foundation here, and then he has this epic turmoil thing here, and then that basis it's a nice foundation for him to understand this weird reality that he's stepping into. So that works pretty well. So in a way, like having a very foundational education in whatever the heck, you know, be it art history or, or English or something like that, or history can really help. And in some cases, if you just take it for that, like, oh, I learned history and never actually take those and really apply them to what's going on, that's completely useless. But if you can make it an elastic education and apply it anywhere, then you have this very powerful tool set for understanding what's going on in the world. So, uh, We need dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and trichotomy. Wait, there you go. Trichotomy. I think that um, I think the, the real problem that's laid out when you read that, that blog and then you look at look at like the book uh, um, shop classes soulcraft is you see this this sense of of kind of this college mill of churning out and that you know present company accepted um, this type of kind of extension of high school churning out the middle manager you know at the end of four years um, saddled with uh, with debt and working in a cube in a very bureaucratic environment with um, standards that are questionable, you know. See, for example, we have the example of CEOs that that have failed and uh, still get their bonuses. So I'm not sure how we we reconcile that with with the actual idea of apprenticeship and craftsmanship, but. It was interesting that earlier Amber brought up that idea of craftsmanship and built to last, and I wanted to, I wanted to bring that up as we uh, move toward uh, toward finishing up the conversation. And that is, what is built to last? What is built to last in the twenty first century? Is there anything built to last in the twenty first century? No. <laughs> In a nutshell. And why not? Um, 
everything has gotten incredibly disposable. I mean, that that is another part of, you know, this goes back to, like, why do I work on older cars? Like, older cars were designed for you to, like, sort of take apart and put back together and, and keep going because there wasn't another inexpensive car you could just, you know, go out and get. You had to make what you had work. And we have gotten very disposable with everything in our lives. We have a disposable culture. Mm-hmm. Um and so things simply aren't designed. Like, they're designed to die after 18 months, so we have to go out and buy another version of it because that keeps the economy moving forward. Right. I, uh, I did a series of basically anthropological experiments in which I would purchase things at a, a certain level where there are some people that purchase things every season, right, like clothing every season. And I, I purchased this whole thing, right, this whole ensemble that would last for six months, and I, I didn't really believe it. I said, "Oh yeah, right. This this will last for longer than you know a season." And I you know, I bought a watch and like out the whole thing, and sure enough, after six months, the it whole died. thing decayed, right? right? And, and and it was very high fashion. So of course, like people would buy it again. But for somebody who doesn't have the means to do that, it's, it's this horribly, it's like this horrible liability of oh my gosh, like this stuff just, you know. Um, uh, and if you look in the past, like people would be wearing one thing for three, four, five years, and they would be mending it and something like that. It's like, um, uh, what is the highest mileage that you've ever seen on a car that you've worked on? Oh well, I think my Great cars questions. are probably my my cars are probably special because I I drove a I drove a BMW that I probably made it to four hundred thousand miles on. Oh my gosh! So that's, I mean, but that was special. Epic. Like like any and that was an older one again. So like any of the new ones, right. like once you get past like one hundred fifty, once you start encroaching on the two hundred thousand mile mark, they're they're basically dead, unless you know how to do something mm-hmm. to it. You know, right. old cars though. Like there's a the oldest actually. Uh, and I know this because it's a Volvo. The oldest uh, car on record for like the highest mileage is approaching. It just peaked over a million miles, and it's a it's a Volvo from the sixties. A million miles. Yep. That's wow. Epic. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I, I mean, when you step on a, a like a seven thirty seven, uh, like on a Southwest flight, I mean. The 737 design has been around for, I want to say, 40 years? Yeah, a good, 35? Yeah, totally. I mean, a good 35? amount of time. 35 years? Only we had a way to check that right now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, my Somebody Google out. It's, <laughs> it's over. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, so... There's a lot of those that are aviation. around. Right. You know? Right. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, we were all going to be flying on SSTs and taking the Concorde across... Uh, country by the, the by certainly by 2001 2010 um <laughs> say that three times fast and uh that just didn't happen we're in 35 year old airplanes mm-hmm. uh, because they're efficient they work well they can be maintained right. the people who maintain them know how to maintain them mm-hmm. um they have minimal upgrades, like in the cockpit and the the computers. But other than that, it's essentially the same same design. Right. Nineteen sixty seven was the first year of the seven thirty seven. Oh my! Hey, so good job. And so you we're pretty have close. A little picture yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes yeah, a lot of sense. Um, I had a point, but it's conveniently lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, and the point is that uh, we, uh, after forty years, we can't even make it back to the moon. <laughs> oh, that was the point. The idea of- <laughs> I told you. There you go. I read your mind. I know nice. you well. 
Actually, it's about you know Russian uh, rockets versus American rockets, where like, NASA has a million points of failure that could happen with mm -hmm. a launch, and Russian has, has much less. Right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now we're using a lot of Russian type things. It's like just put a bunch of fuel in it and throw it up in the air, and it'll be okay. A simple design. Right, just something that works. Yeah, and you know. So so is cra is craftsmanship. Is the definition of craftsman craftsmanship a simple design? Well, it takes a lot to become simple. Like actual simple design is really complicated, uh -huh. but you don't see any of it. The complexity is in the background, uh -huh. and so people take it for granted sometimes. But it's you know, it works out in the end. So, so Andy, do you, is there a uh, is there a uh, Digital, simple design, a lasting craftsmanship somewhere in the digital world that we'll land on at some point. This well, I, think, I think Amber sort of said it even even there. It's it's getting down, distilling to the point of a cleaner design, regardless of whether that is like the, the things that we have today and the, the things that are disposable tend to have multiple points of failure, and, and whether it's physical or digital. And once you are able to distill those things down into a cleaner, more streamlined thing, they become that that more longer-lasting piece of design, whether it's virtual or otherwise. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that's uh, been an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I know we probably haven't solved anything here, but absolutely uh, not. But no. that's uh, fodder for uh, for another time. Um, Amber, any uh, parting words uh, on this subject or anything else? Hey, thanks. It's been a very enjoyable time <laughs> being in this basement again. Yes, yeah, back <laughs> here. Andy? It's been a pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed myself quite a bit. Well, it's been great to have you uh, both here. Uh, you know, this has been quite a kickoff uh, for Crazy Talk, so... Um, and I Hopefully really we set the bar some. high. Oh, you did set the bar nice. high. All right. Very high. Very Job well high done then. The so thank you very much for everyone for joining us. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week. Uh, plan to talk about... I actually don't have the... Uh, I have the subject. I don't have the nice tagline. But we're going to talk about the virtual social web and voting. We're on the heels of a vote. Does being on Facebook and Twitter uh, gain you votes? Uh, we'll have some guests to come in and, and talk about that uh, soon on the next Crazy Talk. Thank you, everybody. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>